0: Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. We're in a tough time in our world right now. We're in a time where... Where people are wondering about God, they're wondering about His heart, and I've heard so many theories this past week. What is God like? What is He doing here? You know, you you have you basically have two different kinds of believers and how they encounter hardship and interpret times of hardship, or like we are right now with this pandemic in our world, trying to figure out the reason why it's happening. And the one kind says that all of this is just an attack; it's straight from the enemy. and and, and, and if we can just deny its presence, then we'll be fine. If we, can, if we can just forget about the fact that this is happening and just be positive, our, our denial of the reality of the moment will somehow help us get through it as if that's faith. So there is no more virus, you know, um, none of us are sick. You got know, people that, that are actually sick and they're like, I'm not sick, I'm fine. And, and, and we understand where they're coming from, but we don't feel that it is a threat to our faith to acknowledge where we're at and at the same time trust in God's complete healing over our lives. And so uh, that's one one side of it. The other side is people that say, well, this is God who sent this virus to the earth to awaken people or to punish them or to you know bring them to repentance and, and all those kinds of things. And and they kind of have almost a form of eschatology that that really hits home on that. And and, and we're not saying that God is not using these moments to do all of those things. He definitely does. He always works things together for his good. Um, But the idea that God is the one almost seeding the virus into the earth, these are some strange ideas um, theologically that that people come up with in this time. And I think the reason why we wrestle, and there is a wrestle, and and I'm far from claiming to have a perfect answer. Um, But I think the reason why we wrestle is because People don't know the heart of God. And so I thought that it would be encouraging for our church and for anybody listening for us to do a series entitled To Know the Heart of God. And what we're going to look at um, over these next few weeks is what God is really like. Maybe you're watching this and you've wondered, because we've all heard rumors, just like there are people that maybe have heard about you. They heard your name or they heard a story about you or they heard about something that you did and they formed an idea. They formed an opinion about who you are while not truly knowing you, never av- actually having spent any time with you. And, and we feel that oftentimes that can be dishonoring to stereotype somebody or to just go on one story that you've heard about them and to write them off or, or, or to hero them, to champion them based on one flash of a, a long story or one chapter in a long story. And so, you know, we feel that people do the same with God. They pick up little stories, little rumors, little ideas about him, and it gets shaped by our culture and what we hear in popular media and all those kinds of things. And, you know, we, we do have to, all of us, I think, at one point in our lives, ask the question, what is God really like for ourselves? And so this is a study that I embarked on um, almost 10 years ago now that, that really changed my life this had this is something that as I was thinking about god and 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 as i was I was preaching I was preaching at that time and as I was relating to God I had a certain idea about him and 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 it shaped my preaching it shaped my faith but what I realized as I went down this journey and down this road is that so much of my faith was dependent upon me I was the center of my faith i was I, was, I knew what Jesus expected of me, and I felt that my duty in life was to meet his expectation. And I thought that if I was disciplined enough, principled enough, worked hard enough, gave enough, prayed enough, worshipped enough, did enough, that God would be able to accept me. The only problem with that is, is it tells us in the book of Romans chapter 3 that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as much as I tried to attain to this level that I felt God expected from me, I kept falling short. And so this meant that I had no confidence before God. When I was preaching, I remember I would stand in the corner. We had a, a youth building and there would be you know, hundreds of youth there. And I would stand in the corner and I'd say, God, I know I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to preach. I don't deserve to get up here because I haven't read my Bible enough this week. I, I haven't prayed enough this week, even though I was praying and I was reading my Bible. I never felt that it was enough. I haven't lived perfectly enough this week. And so I don't know if your anointing can work through me today. And I I felt insecure and I used to pray for the people and say, God, even though I don't deserve it, please don't punish the people on my behalf. Please work through me for their sake. And that was kind of my prayer. And and it just led to a lack of confidence before God. When you pray, you are saying, God, I pray that you can do this for me. But as you pray, you've already disqualified yourself. Why? On the basis of your works. You're going, well, I know I'm not really good enough to deserve this prayer. So we almost disqualify ourselves for the very thing that we're asking for, even while we're asking for it. And, and so I got to a place in my own life where I felt that nothing I did would ever be good enough, that I just simply cannot please God. I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough good works. I don't have enough discipline. Um, and so there must just be a select few people that God is truly um, proud of, truly accepting of, and unfortunately I don't make the grade. And so that I started treating every symptom in my life um as or everything that happened in my life as a symptom of my failure so so for example at one point they broke into my house and and i thought that 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 was because i hadn't prayed enough and then there was another moment where where something went wrong in my life and, and it was something negative happened and i thought yep that's that's my fault it's because i haven't done enough it's because it's because i haven't prayed enough it's because i haven't tried hard enough um, and it's almost karma more than it is grace. It's almost some Eastern philosophy more than it is the gospel of Jesus. It's it's basically saying that if you do good things, good things will happen. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen. And 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 our Christianity can can subtly start to absorb this kind of worldview, which just isn't the message of the Bible. And and so if you are going to live with this karma-induced worldview, hey, get ready for a rubbish life, because I'm telling you now, if you're honest about your life and how you live, none of us in our own selves, in our own strength, are able to make the grade, which means we will always be suffering under the consequences of our own imperfection, um, because we all live imperfectly. So in this time, you know, I'm just feeling rejected by God in some way. I, I feel a level of condemnation. I know he's good, but the problem is I'm not. And so how do I, as an imperfect person, relate and keep relating to this perfect God? And so I wanted to know his heart. You know, we've, we've all heard about the heart of God in Sunday school. We've sung the songs, we heard the stories, we, we, you know, we, you know, and we think to ourselves, yes, God had that kind of patience for us when we were kids, but now I'm an adult. And surely God's expectation of me is different. Surely He's raised the bar and surely He's run out of patience. How many of you have made promises to God and 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 then broken those promises and then made some more promises and then broken those promises? And it's just kind of this never-ending cycle of making and breaking promises to the point where you're ready to walk away and stop making any more promises because you know you, you just realize that it is it is not possible for you in your own strength to fulfill even your own decisions about how you would want to live. We know this about ourselves. We make New Year's resolutions and we struggle to keep them, you know, till the end of January if we if we are able to. So, so this is part of our, our struggle. And, and so it just produces a recipe for a tumultuous existence to think that I've constantly got to be good enough. Um, in 1 John 3 verse 21, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. If our heart does not condemn us, we'll have confidence. Before. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like you won't have confidence before God if your heart is condemning you at the same time. And so, OK, so that's great. If if my heart is not condemning me, I have confidence. So then In that moment, I was thinking to myself, that means I either have to be delusional or I have to be dishonest. (laughs) Because how could I have confidence before God? How could my heart not condemn me? Because the heart that is within me knows the truth of the areas that I fall short. I long to be better in so many different ways. How can anybody then have confidence before God? And then that brings us. To the other side of the of, of the discussion, which is, okay, how does God respond? How does he respond to sinners like us? If we're honest about our imperfections and our struggles, what is God's attitude towards sinners? What is God? Maybe you're watching this and you've never even been to church. You've never even, you know, prayed a prayer where you invited Jesus into your life, where you've turned away from your old life and you said, right, God, I want to serve you. Maybe you've never even done that. And the question now is, how does God respond? Because some of the people that are talking about this virus are, are saying that God is sending it to, to almost punish people. I've heard some people say that. So what is God's heart towards sinners like us? And what was God's heart towards me when I was face to face with my own imperfection? For the better part of, the, of a year, I just felt that I needed to understand the heart of God. And so I wiped away everything I thought I knew about him. All the, the studies I had done, all the things that I'd been taught, all the lessons that I'd learned. I said, wait a minute, with fresh eyes now, I want to wipe it all off of, off of the table and say, okay, God, this is just you and me now, and I want to know what you're like. Tell me what you're like, God. I opened up my Bible and I started rereading it from scratch. I wanted to know, okay from scratch, who is this God? I'm trying to see with new eyes what I had missed. And about nine months later, as I, as I was going on this journey, I felt that I needed to read the Gospels. And I wanted to read the Gospels and reread the Gospels because I wanted to see what Jesus was like. If I knew what, what Jesus was like, I would know what God is like. And and the reason why I thought this was because of that time in in John 14 where Philip comes to Jesus. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that would be enough for us. If you just show us what the Father is like, then we'll know. This is in John 14 verse 8 to 9. Show us the Father. And Jesus responds by saying, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't get this? You still don't understand. Those that have seen me have seen the Father. And I realized that Jesus is God. He put God on display. He is God with flesh and bones on. I mean, I knew this before, but all of a sudden I understood that I could begin to see the heart of God and to know the heart of God by looking at Jesus in the Gospels. Colossians 1 verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, the express image of his person. And so I realized that I have this opportunity to connect with the life of Jesus and move beyond the speculation about what God is like and and the Old Testament scriptures that we've all heard that are taken out of context with with, with a lack of, of understanding of what God was doing through the Old Testament, especially in moments like these especially when there's a virus spreading across the earth, killing thousands. What is God like? How do we get to see what he's really like? Without taking some random verse out of the Old Testament, like some people have already done, and and saying that this is the wrath of God, what is God like and how does he treat people? It's exactly that kind of of misrepresentation, I believe, that Jesus came to set right. Jesus is like, I want to tell you who I really am. I want to show you who God is he's full of grace and truth in fact what Jesus so often did the only confrontation or the harshest confrontation that he had with people on earth was religious people that had misrepresented God according to the law according to their interpretation of the law and and he that you know that as they were trying to tell people what God is like they spoke so much nonsense But they were speaking as if they were speaking on God's behalf. And so Jesus shows up and he flips the entire thing. He changes the game on what God is like. The Pharisees had had caught a woman in adultery and they throw her down in front of Jesus. And they say, okay, now what is God like? What does God do with this sinner? And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. That's the heart of God. So Jesus shows us. um, And in the way that he treats people, we begin to see the heart of God through all of that. He loves people. He heals the sick. He cares about the poor. Um, all very different from what the legalists were saying about God. He came to set the story straight. The life of Jesus is the most authoritative statement in the history of, of the world about what God is like. It, it, we have no greater authority on the subject than his personal life with the people he came to save. So many scholars agree that the first gospel account that was written was the gospel of Mark. Now you might be asking, why are there four gospels? And it's quite simple. There's four different perspectives. Each of these perspectives tells us something about Jesus, something that we wouldn't have known if we didn't have that unique perspective to guide us. Just the same way that if I wanted to know something about you and I went to one of your friends and I asked them what you were like, they would give me one perspective. But if I went to a second friend and a third friend and a fourth friend, I would get a much more complete view of what you were like. And that's what the gospels are. They give us a complete picture of Jesus from slightly varying perspectives, holding fast to one central truth that Jesus is the son of God who came to save people and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that, that's, that's kind of the beauty of the four gospels that we have in the book of ezekiel and in the book of revelation we see that there are these four creatures around the throne and many people believe that these four creatures represent the four different gospels and their different perspectives on jesus and so you have one that is a lion which represents his kingliness and that's that's the gospel of matthew then you have the ox which is which is, it represents the servant-hearted um, God, the God, the wounded healer who came to serve people. And and, and that's Jesus as the servant. Then we have um, in, in the book of Luke, Jesus as a man, as human, as in touch with, with humanity and the reality of humankind. And finally, we have the book of John represented by an eagle showing the divinity of Jesus as the Messiah. And so today I want to just look at at Mark. I felt like this was a perfect place to start, since it is the first gospel account most likely that was written. Um, but, but Mark sees Jesus as an ox. An ox is a beast of burden, a, a servant. And you'll notice in the book of Mark, if you read through it, that there's no genealogy. Matthew sees Jesus as a king, so it starts with a genealogy, because if you're a king, your genealogy matter, matters, your lineage matters. But when you're a servant, your lineage doesn't matter as much as your works, as, your, as the, the, the acts that you did in service of others. And so the book of Mark records more miracles than any other gospel, because a servant is known by his works. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said this. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That that's who Jesus is. He he showed up and he's like I'm not here to serve to be served. I'm here to serve. I'm here to give my life. I'm here to to obey the reason for the mission that for which my father sent me. That's the heart of Jesus. So Mark shows us that Jesus and therefore God came to serve people, came to love people, came to be there for people. And so the first Message that I want to share in this series to know the heart of God is called he is a friend of sinners He is a friend of sinners because Jesus arrives And early on i'm talking about mark chapter number two Jesus already starts Associating and spending time with and having dinners with and hanging out with People that were considered the worst sinner's of the day, the gangsters, the thugs, the prostitutes, the dishonest, you know, what, the criminals. And he goes and he arrives and many are calling him a prophet. Many are calling him, you know, a man of God, a holy man. And they expect him to act like the other religious people that separated themselves from all perceived evil they separate themselves from from anything that's common anything that's just everyday and they're saying no we are we're holy we're separated we won't mix with the masses but jesus shows up and they're calling him a prophet they're calling him a holy person they recognize that there's something divine about his nature yet he hangs out with the ragamuffins, he, with the riffraff, with the, with the rubbish of, of his time, with the people that, that were literally robbing from, from others in the most dishonest and sometimes brutal of ways. In Mark chapter number two, Jesus walks up to a tax collector called Levi, and he calls Levi to follow him. He, he picks not a religious elite, but a but a tax collector. Now you're thinking, you know, tax collectors aren't all that bad. But in the day, tax collectors were often uh, people of Jewish descent. They were they were Jews that had coerced with the Roman government. Remember, Israel was was run by Rome at that time, and these people had had collaborated with the Roman government, and, and the Romans had said to them, "If you tax your people and get money from them, this is the portion that we want." You can keep whatever you wanna keep for yourself. And so with the authority of the Roman government, these tax collectors often added percentages to what the Roman tax was, sometimes even up to four times the normal tax amount. And they would give Rome their portion and keep the rest for themselves. They literally robbed their own people. They betrayed their own nation. They stole from their own nation. And Jesus walks up to a guy, infamous, hated in his community, somebody who's betrayed his own people and says, I want, to, I want you to follow me. I want you to come with me. But he doesn't just hang out with him and give him a, you know, a few tips and tricks. He doesn't just, just give him a bit of advice and send him on his way. Jesus hangs out with him. In fact, he ends up going to the house of Levi that evening, and they they end up having a dinner, and the house is filled with tax collectors and, and sinners and people from all over. It's literally a massive house, and it says that they were all reclining at the table with Jesus. Dinners and meals in those days was a cultural thing. It didn't just last for 30 minutes or an hour. It could last for hours. And if you really were comfortable in somebody's presence, then you'd actually recline at the table. You'd you'd sit back, and and I, I think our modern term for it would be you would park off at the table. You're not going anywhere in a hurry. This showed that you accepted the people and they accepted you. Jesus, the Son of God, come to give his life for the ransom of many, the creator of heaven and earth. He parks off with sinners. He reclines at the table. And and as this is happening, the religious people are losing their minds. They are they're over it. They are so upset about what is happening. They start murmuring. They start, they start talking out against uh, Jesus and, and what He's doing and how He's spending time with, the, with, with, the, with all the, the sinners and, and the tax collectors. And if we turn for a moment to Mark chapter number 2, we'll see how they respond to Jesus in this moment. Mark chapter number two and verse 16. It says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They just, they don't get it. Why does he do this? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, sinners. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. He was a friend of sinners. And you know why that's good news? Because that means he can be your friend. That means that he is my friend. The only reason why Jesus is my friend is because he is a friend of sinners. What an incredible revelation about the heart of God. This is what God is like. Not all the stories not all the things that you've heard, not all the threats, not all the fear, not all the condemnation. So different from what the religious people would claim. Jesus shows up and he spends time with sinners. Talk about the description of the heart of God as Jesus breaks religious protocol and goes after those that truly need him. How many times has God been portrayed as angry or vindictive or A religious tyrant that's just wanting to punish and destroy lives in order to teach people a lesson. Peter once got upset with with religious people because of their prejudice. And he responded not knowing the spirit that he was of. It says at a time that Jesus was moving up to Jerusalem with his disciples, they were going um, up towards Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And Jesus sends Peter and some of the disciples ahead and says, can you find out if there is space for us to stay over in Samaria? And when the Samaritans heard that these were Jews on their way to Jerusalem, there was a religious prejudice in that day, and they refused them a place to sleep. They said, no, you cannot stay here. So this really upset Peter, and he comes back to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, they are refusing us a place to sleep. Shall we pull an Elijah and call fire down from the sky just to burn them all? You know, this is he's just clearly Peter was upset. Clearly, he had lost he had lost the plot a little bit there for a moment. And, and Jesus says to 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 Peter, he says, Peter, it actually says that Jesus rebuked him and said, Peter, you do not know the the kind of spirit that you are of. It says this in Luke nine, verse fifty five. You do not know the kind of spirit you are of for the son of man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He came to save lives. That's the heart. Of God, So right there, that should put a dent in the argument of anyone who claims that God is a vindictive tyrant, that God is just looking to destroy lives, that he's just looking to punish, that he's just looking to, to avenge. It simply isn't the picture that Jesus showed us of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus then arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is, which is the day that we celebrate today. It is one week before Easter. And by the way, we're going to have an amazing time of Easter. We're going to have, um, we're going to have our Good Friday service next Friday morning. Um, and, uh, and we're also going to have um, a Sunday, Resurrection Sunday service, which we're really looking forward to. So please join us for that. But in Mark chapter number 11, we read about this triumphal entry as Jesus comes into the city. And it tells us in, in Mark 11, verse 7, it says, They brought a colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut off from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna! in the highest. This is how Jesus rides into Jerusalem. This is how he comes into the city. This is how he is is welcomed by the people. There's the triumphal entry of the son of God. Now Jesus, God in the flesh comes, the creator of heaven and earth arrives. He who holds all things together by the word of his power, now comes into the city to fulfill the purpose for which he was sent. How does he arrive? How does he show up? What's the fanfare? We know that in, in general when, when rulers and kings and leaders would arrive in cities. They would, they would arrive with, with, with pomp and with fanfare and with all these different things. But the arrival of the son of God looks a little different. He rides in. On a donkey, he rides in on a donkey. Why on earth would Jesus show up on a donkey in one of the most important moments in human history? This was to fulfill a prophecy that we find in the book of Zechariah. And uh, in Zechariah, if I get there for a moment in my Bible, in Zechariah chapter number nine, it tells us. It was prophesying many, many, many years before, Zechariah 9 and verse 9. It says this, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. It's talking to, it's talking to God's people, you know, those of Zion, those of Jerusalem, the, the people of God. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted On a donkey. It tells us that Jesus, our Savior, is humble. He's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That was the the messianic prophecy that was given in in Zechariah 9 regarding the arrival of Jesus. And here we have hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus shows up and he does exactly what that prophecy declared. He rides in on a donkey. Now, now I get it. We can start with the fact. why, Why is that significant? There's a few reasons. We can start with the fact that Jesus is humble. It told us that in Zechariah 9 that our Savior is humble because God is love. And love is not proud, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. It is not proud. It doesn't seek its own. And so Jesus is, as the nature of God is, humble. He rides in on this donkey. But there's another reason, which is actually quite significant for us, that he chose a donkey rather than a horse of war. Now, okay, before I get to that, you know, Choosing a donkey instead of a horse of war is just, it's just flies in the face. It's just how counterculture Jesus actually was, how countercultural his arrival really was. Because the glory that we have in God, God's glory, true glory, is not an earthly glory. It's not not a man-made glory. And so Jesus doesn't seek, in his humility, doesn't seek a man-made, you know, fanfare or, or honor. He is there to honor God. And that is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of, of, of true humility, to, to understand that you are sent, to understand that, you are, that you are, your worth is settled in God. So, so he's not seeking an earthly glory, but an eternal one. But further to this, there's something that we see there in Zechariah 9 verse 10. And it says that God will cut off the horse of war from Jerusalem. In biblical times, if a king or a leader rode into a city on a horse, it signified his intention for war. It signified his intention to do battle. But when a leader rode into a city on a donkey, it signified that he had come to bring peace. And that's what Jesus has brought, a peace between man and God. You don't have to suffer under condemnation anymore. You don't have to suffer thoughts that feel as if God has rejected you, or feel that you're not good enough, that you haven't done enough. All those thoughts that I had to battle, uh, that I battled with uh, as I was growing up in my faith. Because what Jesus brought is peace. The Bible says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. He was bringing people and uniting them to Himself through His grace and the finished work of the cross. That prophecy in Zechariah 9 tells us that Jesus shall speak peace to the nations. The peace that people are now right with the Father. So that's how Jesus comes into our lives. That's how he comes into your life. He doesn't enter any differently to the way that he entered into Jerusalem that day. He comes humbly with an offer of peace. He comes and he says, I am Jesus and I love you. I am Jesus and I've died for you. I am Jesus and I care about you. In 1 John 4, verse 10, it tells us, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His only begotten Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He gave His Son. That's how we know. That's God's love. That's who He is. He Loved us in Isaiah 53 verse 5. It tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The punishment, the judgment that we deserved, it passed on to Jesus and he was crucified so that we may be forgiven. We see that Jesus was was close to people. He didn't hide behind bodyguards. He didn't hide behind fanfare. He was, he was gentle and lowly and hard. And what I'm trying to tell you today is that every one of you has the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus, no matter what you've struggled with, no matter what you're currently struggling with at this point, because His grace is enough to forgive you and to move you beyond those struggles, to give you the victory over sin, to give you the victory over addiction, to give you the victory over the things that you've maybe have battled with for years. You cannot do it in your own strength. That's the secret, that's the key. But you can do it through the strength and through the grace that God gives you. In Revelation 3 verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anybody hears my voice and opens up the door for me, I will come in and I will eat with them. My father and I will eat with him. This is the the picture of the relationship. Just like Jesus ate with Levi and the tax collectors. Just like he ate with Zacchaeus and, and his friends. Just like he ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. No matter how bad or disqualified you feel, as Jesus knocks on the door, if you open up, he will come in and he will eat with you. The king calls to us. He's made an offer of peace through the cross and invites us to open the door, to eat with him, to experience fellowship and togetherness and unity with God. How did people respond? What is our response like? How did people respond to the triumphal entry of Jesus? It says, and many spread their cloaks on the road while others spread leafy branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday, because they cut off palm branches and leaves and and put that down on the ground. They took their own cloaks and lay it down on the ground for Jesus and his donkey to be ushered into the city. Now we don't see anything where this was commanded, where, where this was demanded, where this was a prerequisite to his entry. This was a gut level response of those witnessing The goodness, the humility, and the grace of the Savior. They chose to respond in worship. They chose to take off their own cloaks willingly and to lay it down. He knocks on the door, but we open. He loves, but we lay down our lives. Worship, our worship, is a response to his goodness. In 1 John 4 verse 19, it says, We love God. Because he first loved us. We love him because he loved us first. So we lovingly lay down our cloaks, We lovingly lay down our crowns. And we put on a new life, a new garment, a new way of being. And it's Christ himself. I love how it says in Galatians 3 verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ like the putting on of new clothes. You have a new life. You have a new garment. You you can lay down your old cloak. As he arrives, lay the old life down because Jesus will give you a new one. This is the God that we serve. He is a friend of sinners. He is the one who gave himself up for us all so that we, could be saved. That's the heart of God. He cares about you. He loves you. He's not looking to destroy men's lives. He's not looking to destroy women's lives. He's not looking to to uh, vindicate or to or to avenge or to or to overthrow. He is looking to call you in to a loving relationship with Him. I want to speak to believers for a moment, and I want to. Ask us to remember the spirit that we are of. As we engage with our world in this time, it's so important that we continually share the gospel, which means good news, that we share the hope of a God that loves us beyond our faults, our imperfections, and the sins that we have committed. In Christ, they have been washed away. And that gospel invitation is available to everyone. So so believers let's remember that as we share, as we post, as we talk, let's remember the heart of Jesus towards an unbelieving world. Unbelievers, I want to encourage you to reconsider what you think you know about God. To ask him to reveal himself to you. If God doesn't exist, your consideration won't matter. You can just conclude that it is what it is. But if it does, then nothing else matters. Then it's all that matters. So maybe take this moment in lockdown to wipe everything that you thought you knew about God off the table and to ask God to reveal himself to you. I believe that he will be faithful to show you that he is a friend of sinners. I wanna go ahead and pray for us today as we close. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, should I say a not yet believer, let's go ahead and trust that God will reveal himself to us.